in the waning days of the immediate past administration, there was a phrase that took hold, and that was these countries, not all by name, but by implication, and expressed us knew exactly uh, what the frame of reference was, that these had become free riders. And um, there was immediate uh, umbrage taken, and uh, people bridled and bristled at uh, something that was not only impolite and uh, lacking in civility, but it also wasn't true. Indeed, uh, one can make the strong case <coughs> uh, that the reverse is more accurate uh, than the way it was articulated here, that these peoples and countries and cultures and histories and businesses were taken advantage of us. Uh, but as you'll see and listen and hear and learn uh, from the commentary and discussions, uh, America's uh, benefits alone have been enormous, deep-seated. Uh, you can make the case massive, and in various sectors, you can make the case that they've been persuasive uh, in terms of job generation here in the United States, in terms of uh, financial deposits in the American uh, banking system uh, that have helped to ensure, propel, and maintain and protect the ongoing preeminence of the American uh, economic system uh, worldwide. In terms of technology and uh, science, these uh, men and women are at the tip of the spear uh, there with regard to advancing America's interests and those as well of allied interests. And that the region has largely been unrivaled in being more secure and more stable, arguably, than any other six neighboring geographically contiguous <coughs> countries among the 130 so-called emerging economies there. This is no small feat, and this has not happened by accident or without being associated uh, with the other peoples of the region, with the United States, and vice versa. Uh, I'll stop here and let you listen to uh, people who uh, work these issues on a day-to-day -day basis and who have a lot to do with trying to improve America's official policies and positions and actions and attitudes and not making more mistakes than would otherwise not likely but certainly uh, be the case. Mike Jones. Thank you very much uh, for having us, Dr. Anthony. And I, I really have to thank the National Council. Um, they've, been a, they've been a great uh, partner for us and an ally for us. And uh, we appreciate, appreciate your generosity. I would be remiss without mentioning the great work that this guy right here does, Pat Mancino, and how great he is to work with. I really appreciate it. Um, so for, I'm not going to say very much at all, which is good. Um, so for businesses looking to come into the region, I just thought I would mention, and, and as I mentioned, our chapters, if you could raise your hand, if you're interested in talking to them afterwards about doing business in the region, please approach them. Chris Johnson is our fearless leader and chairman. He represents, uh, as well, our group in Riyadh. Uh, Fred Schwabe, uh, 
representing our group from Kuwait, who's also our board secretary. Delano Roosevelt is representing Bahrain. Matthew Kirkham is representing uh, Jeddah. And Dave Cantrell from the Eastern Province, little guy in the back of the room there. Um, Rob Hager representing Qatar. Bill Al Sabuni representing the UAE, he's also our board vice chairman. Uh, and uh, John Pratt, our former chairman, is here as well, and he's also a board member of the National Council, as is Delano. And uh, I'd like to introduce this gentleman as well. He's Dr. Carl Petrick from Western New England University. Him and his economics team there have put together all of our trade data that we're using to convince members of Congress about our, our issues. So. We have more than 78 meetings on the Hill and with the administration this week. We tried to get something at state, but no one answered the phone. <laughs> uh, with that, I'll turn it over to our, uh, our fearless, uh, sorry, Dr. Anthony. Um, I've been asked, asked to uh, mention uh, the name and the uh, background of an individual who uh, came onto this already rolling train a little uh, later, more recently, than than the others, and that's uh, Nahla El Jaber. Where are you, Nahla? Right here. There. Nahla is uh, a member of uh, the National Council's International Advisory Board. She's a National Council International Affairs Fellow. Uh, we don't have many of these, but the ones we have are all stellar, and uh, Nahla is at the top uh, amongst those. Uh, she's Saudi Raven, and she has been working with uh, the Saudi Raven government and American corporations, increasing numbers of the latter, uh, for more than half a decade now. Uh, but addressing an issue and a challenge and a principle and an opportunity that's long been there, uh, but seldom taken advantage of by many, if not most, American corporations, and that is to try to find an American corporation that would take uh, as an intern for any meaningful length of time before she or he returns to the kingdom. They're already here. There's no airfare to uh, worry about. And who knows what down the road uh, can result in terms of uh, Mutuality of benefit and reciprocity of reward there. Uh, Arabs, like most mortals, crave education, value it, appreciate it, and um, long live uh, the memories of their most esteemed uh, professors. Uh, so uh, Nahla is at the interface between this emerging generation of leaders and those who will manage the relationship and take them to other higher uh, levels of achievement and accomplishment. We're lucky to have uh, Nafa join this team here today. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. Uh, at this point in time, we're going to turn over to Chris Jones. Chris. It's great to see some, so many old friends. Thank you so much for hosting us. Okay, I'll try to do that. Um, 
It's been a great experience as always. I've been coming to these door knocks for a number of years. I've been living in Saudi Arabia for the past 38 years off and on. And uh, I've learned so much uh, this time, particularly from Carl. He's taught us the value and the size and scope of the GCC relationship. The GCC is our number six trading partner in the world after only Canada, um, Mexico, Japan, Germany, uh, UK. Germany. We're bigger than Germany. And so it's already extremely significant. Um, and um, uh, for every billion dollars in exports, we generate six million jobs here at home. So there is a domestic jobs uh, argument that I think is very persuasive uh, in appreciating and nurturing that relationship. And, uh, talk a little bit about where we are in the Gulf now. As you all know, uh, uh, one of the big factors in the prosperity and in the uh, focus of Saudi Arabia and its uh, Gulf allies. Um, um, uh, is uh, oil prices, and they were very high quite recently, and uh, at the time of the crisis in 2008, there were calls for Saudi Arabia to deploy its tremendous um, reserves and its uh, surplus in oil sales to reinvigorate the economy, and it did respond. It responded by enormous domestic investment programs, and so you see in Saudi Arabia, for example, um, $35, $40 billion invested in the Kingdom Financial District, the biggest single construction project in the history of the world. You see a $25 billion metro project in Riyadh. Um, uh, very ambitious and very uh, uh, great opportunities for U.S. companies. But unfortunately for the region and for uh, oil exporters, uh, that did not last. And uh, it created a model that was unsustainable. Climate of reduced oil prices and um, of reduced revenues for Saudi Arabia, um, it really ran up against its limits and it had to be seriously revised, as it has been since uh, the Deputy Crown Prince has been in charge of economic policy. There's been a radical um, uh, retooling of the economy and uh, uh, Vision 2030 and the National um, uh, Transformation Program uh, aimed to convert from a uh, economy based on government uh, uh, revenues to one based on private sector empowerment. And so uh, this is where we are now. We're trying to um, understand uh, what this privatization and deregulation that informed the um, uh, Vision 2030, what will it mean in practice? And now needless to say, there's always a, um, a gap between the theory and the reality, and implementation has been a challenge. And so, uh, how do you get um, uh, government agencies that have always been run on the government uh, uh, subsidy model to one that's based on private revenues and taxation uh, from bureaucrats who've never done it and have no experience in that field? Hence, a huge mobilization of uh, consultants from McKinsey, from Boston Consulting, to work with the uh, Ministry of Economy and Planning and Finance and other key ministries in developing a practical plan. Um, and um, one uh, area that's been revisited is what do we do with the national wealth, which has hitherto been focused on domestic investments. Well, the new plan is that this is not a prudent um, allocation of, uh, of reserves. Uh, there should be a different balance. Uh, I think currently the statistic that you see is that 95% uh, of all government assets are domestic, 5% are foreign. Well, the plan now is to make that even equalize it 50-50 and to monetize many of the government assets to sell 5% of Aramco, to privatize uh, the power companies and the water companies and to uh, uh, 
redeploy those assets towards more uh, uh, profitable investments in Silicon Valley and Wall Street. And the, so you see an enormous growth in the public investment fund, which is the new sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia um, that uh, now controls about $250 billion, but ultimately it could be as much as $2 trillion if all of the proceeds of the privatizations go into that fund. And they've already uh, invested $3.5 billion in Uber. And uh, that bought them a seat on the board. So that may be an indication of the types of investments that you may see in the U.S., which are, needless to say, very beneficial to our economy. Um, and uh, you see a, a huge uh, staffing up. And the PIF had almost nobody, I don't know, maybe 20 people a year ago. Now they've hired Kevin O'Donnell, who's an American from Silicon Valley, to build up an equity division with a mandate to hire 12 of the best experts from around the world. And, you know, what they know is high-tech and California types of investments. I think you can expect that there will be an interest in that in more of the Uber type of investment. Uh, you also see a real estate division there in the process of transferring the King Dollar Financial District uh, to the PIF from the public pension fund right now. And, uh, um, now, what that assumes, um, you know, is that there will be a privatization, deregulation um, uh, uh, of everything, essentially. That will extend to healthcare, it will extend to education, though so far they haven't really come up with an economic model that's bankable. But uh, maybe a sign of things to come, if you look at infrastructure, is the airports. There are 26 airports, they're all owned by uh, the uh, General Authority for Civil Aviation. Um, but the newest one in Medina is now been offered for PPP, a public private partnership. There is a sovereign guarantee from the Ministry of Finance that supports the investment that will be made. There is a revenue stream that's predictable. Um, and so if you can establish the same parameters in power and water and other utilities, I think those will be the next in line for privatization. Um, there is a movement within the government to create the same types of templates that you already see for public procurements and uh, tenders regulations and EPP regulations. And, uh, uh, there's also a move to uh, rationalize the um, um, uh, the management of these huge government infrastructure projects. And there was a competitive bid for a company for the overall owner's representative. In fact, Tell won that bid, and they're now playing a very important role in, uh, uh, in, in trying to manage more professionally, more consistently these enormous projects that are bigger than anything. More, for example, transportation rail projects scheduled in Saudi Arabia and in all of China. It's still unprecedented in scope. Um, and so I think you're beginning to see the infrastructure uh, assembled in this sort of thing. Um, foreign investors are expected to play a leading role in bringing the financial, the managerial, the technical resources to uh, run these different uh, companies better than hitherto. You see, for example, um, uh, Aramco uh, is being partially privatized. Um, there's some studies you know, that show that it, had, it does have social welfare programs, and they're uh, employing 65,000 people uh, to produce oil <coughs> take Exxon Mobil in half, the less that So is that <coughs> really political issues? There's some questions whether that's really realistic to expect. Now, you also need, in order to attract foreign investors for these kind of risks, you need the right enabling environment. You need uh, to have the kinds of regulatory rules and governments um, uh, policies that make it a, a good risk. You know, not only do you need a predictable revenue source, 
but you also need uh, good courts. You also need um, a bankruptcy system. You know, what kind of a free market is, is it if you can go in but you can't come out? Right now, Saudi Arabia on the World Bank Index, the ease of doing business is number 167 out of 167 in ease of liquidating companies. So that has to change. There need to be reforms. There needs to be a bankruptcy law that really is reliable and proven and tested before the big companies can take enormous risks in the market. Um, there's some aspects of the plan that are controversial. One is uh, Saudi Arabia is a big defense importer. Uh, let's require that our vendors invest and manufacture their products in Saudi Arabia uh, so that instead of uh, spending 3% of our defense spend on domestic supplies, we raise that to 50%. Well, that raises a lot of challenges. Uh, you know, will we license our, um, you know, our intellectual property? And some indications that there's hesitancy to do that. So uh, there's the possibility that they may have to rethink that part, sort of choosing uh, sectors and trying to compel investment in those areas. Um, so you know, much work remains to be done in creating that necessary entrepreneurial enabling environment. Um, now, uh, I want to pick up on John Deucey at the very beginning, the conclusion that it's the relationship has been very important commercially. Um, strategically, you know, it's a very um, uh, crucial area. We still, the world depends on energy exports from this region. Um, it's very fragile. Uh, Maybe arguably not really appreciated and nurtured the relationships in recent years as much as we could have. So I think it's hugely consequential for us to have friends in the area and for this relationship to succeed. And um, so. Um, um, I, I think this administration has given some good indications that it understands the value. One of the first calls that uh, President Trump made after his inauguration was King Solomon. He spoke for an hour and they agreed on many of the geopolitical issues, including the threat of destabilization from Iran, the need for cooperation in Syria and in Yemen and so forth. So some of the early indications are good. Um, now, uh, sort of on a, on, on a theoretical point, um, one interesting study of, um, that inspired me in, uh, uh, is Jared Diamond's book, Collapse. And in that study, he talks about what is it that causes civilizations to collapse. And one of the phenomena that he looks at is when you have economic interdependence, and I think one of the examples he gives is two Pacific islands, and one makes rope and the other makes uh, cutting stone, and uh, they have a symbiotic relationship, and they both prosper. And then they get into a silly uh, conflict, and they cut each other off, and they both collapse, and they're both uh, destroyed in a very short period. And he says, well, my study is ancient civilizations, but if I were to look today and to try to find a counterpart to that example, uh, perhaps it would be the U.S. and the Gulf, uh, because of the um, energy interdependence, because of the cooperation in the geostrategic area. Now, that might be the example today. I think he's right. I think that... Um, the relationship is ours to lose, that there's a tremendous desire for a strategic partnership, and that uh, hopefully there are some signs that our new administration gets it. Uh, but um, I think we ignored it our peril, and if it fails, I think the consequences could be extremely negative. Uh, and so um, uh, there is, uh, there was, under uh, the time of uh, George W. Bush, strategic and economic dialogue. This is a structure that we have with some of our major counterparts in the trade area. We have one with China, we have one with India. 
was an announcement that we would also launch one in Japan during the recent visit, I think, of Secretary Tillerson to that country. And I think that's something that we need with Saudi Arabia and GCC. Um, it sort of fell into disuse, but because of the reasons that I gave and because of the potential benefits, uh, economically and geopolitically and strategically, this is one of our messages. We'd like to see a, a strategic and economic dialogue, multi-agency restored, and uh, very proactively pursued. So thank you so much for the conclusion. I think now I'm asked to turn over the microphone to Nafa Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Mentioned in the bio, I'm both for the Saudi Arabian Cultural Mission as part of the Ministry of Education. And our purpose, the Saudi Arabian Cultural Mission's purpose is to oversee uh, our students studying in the United States. We have over 70,000 students here. Compare me. Um, and what our office, the Center for Career Development that I oversee, does is we're trying to help students in the United States to. Um, gain some experience, uh, whether through internship or post-graduation training, and uh, experience and take that experience back home. Um, we've expanded our services also to include um, companies in Saudi Arabia who are looking for Saudi talent to help them find that Saudi talent um, uh, that are US educated. Uh, although, I mean, the main purpose, uh, one of the purposes for the internship is to, um, for our students to gain um, uh, experience and companies to um, take advantage of well-educated Saudi students here in Saudi Arabia, we think that um, the, the benefits that uh, is gained from both parties go beyond just the internship, you know, gaining experience. Um, as um, Mr. Johnson has mentioned, that we need to strengthen our relationship with uh, the countries, between the two countries, or the Gulf and the United States. And I think through this internship, uh, post-graduation training program, uh, we can help with that uh, objective because when students go and train at U.S. companies, one, yes, they learn their um, experience, but they also learn how Americans do their business. They learn American business ethics, which they can take home uh, and make it easier to interact with American businesses. They learn about how to interact with Americans in an um, environment other than uh, the academic and the um, uh, social environment because they get their schools and their communities. Um, but on the other side, the companies also gain because they get to um, see how Saudis think, how they work. That's something that they can use when they go into the Saudi market to um, they have some experience on how they deal with the Saudis um, so that they can avoid some of the um, cultural um, misunderstandings which can um, be very costly to the companies. Um, they have been um, contracts lost over misunderstanding, basic cultural misunderstanding. So hopefully that would help. Another benefit is that um, when the students work with American companies, we present them a truer image of who we are as Saudis, not the one that is um, projected in the media. A lot of times there's a lot of stereotyping. We have to break that through the internship programs. Um, the other thing is um, Hiring somebody on a full-time basis can be very expensive sometimes. It, it doesn't work out. So if um, American com or international companies inside Saudi Arabia want to hire Saudis, but they don't want to take the risk first time, they can come. If they're in the United States, they can take on the interns, train them, 
see if there's a connection, and then if it works out, they go back home and then um, continue the relationship. But we also know that not all relationships work out fine, and sometimes it's, it's not a perfect match. The student might not um, think that you know it's the perfect company to work for, or the company might say think the um, uh, the student is not a perfect match. But that doesn't mean that the relation has to stop here. The students that get trained here will also can make, continue to benefit the companies back home in the sense that um, they can be uh, future networkers for them. They, can, they may uh, open their own organization where they can become subcontractors, uh, partners. Um, they can uh, help them uh, navigate the um, this, uh, legal system, the economic system. Um, a lot of talk has been uh, going on because we have some rules and regulations that might be difficult to understand, or we, when we're moving on, including those, so they can help you with that. And then the other thing um, that I'd, I'd like to add is that um, if you look at uh, uh, the um, many of our ministers or those who are holding um, top level positions, both in the government and in the private sector, are West are educated outside of Saudi Arabia. So maybe the students you take on might be in the future in a position where he or she has signatory authority that might benefit the company that trains them. So these are some of the benefits that um, go beyond the just, uh, you know, take on an intern uh, and for the student to learn uh, and the company to, you know, get a fresh look or get somebody with a fresh look to work with them. So these are some of the things we um, promote for um, hiring Saudi or training Saudi students. Um, if anybody has any questions about that, I'm here. I'm located in uh, the United States. Our office is in Fairfax, Virginia. We're happy to help. Um, if there are any questions, we, we can answer them. I'll hopefully answer them. If you're looking uh, ready to take on interns, we can help you with that too. Given that we have um, over 72,000 students studying here, we have um, students in practically any major you can think of and majors you even, didn't even cross your mind. So please take advantage of that. Um, we're here to help. The service that we do is to help the students and to help the companies looking to hire students or train students. The services are practically for free. You can use as many our services many times as you want, um, and um, and you can do you can use all the services. You can use one of the services. Feel free to um, take advantage of it. Um, I do have a, um, a, little, a short flyer which basically explains what we do and what kind, how we can help you um, meet your staffing needs, how you can meet your, um, your cultural needs. You know, we're here to help. Thank you. Can we ask a question now or not? Let's, uh, let's hold the questions for the very end. My note cards, if that's okay, so we can get through the, the presentations first. My name is Carl Patrick. I'm Associate Professor of Economics at Western New England University in Springfield, Massachusetts. I'm going to pass these around. One, two, two perks of being an academic. I get three pens and I get three business cards. And theoretically, I get my summers off. So I'm going to just hand these around, just, just pass them around. Some people already have them, but if you like me, you have no idea where you put them. Uh, other people I haven't met yet, and please take a card and pass around. And if I don't get them back, hey, I 
fantastic. As Pat said, a great problem to have, having this many people in the room. I'll talk very briefly about the, the project that we have ongoing. Starting in 2014, we started the MECAC-Western New England University Gulf Trade Project. And that is where we provide the trade data for MECAC for their annual doorknob. And it's a team of undergraduate students. Two or three usually a year. I've had a total of seven so far that have been a part of the part of the team. We research US state level data for the students, uh, uh, the students do, and then we analyze it. And we provide the one-page reports that the uh, all the people from MECAC take into their meetings with members of Congress, members of the State Department when they answer the phone, all that kind of stuff. <coughs> The students get uh, learning data to be on the classroom credit for that. They have to do two of those over the course of their four years, or in Mike Ryan's case, uh, eight years uh, as a student at Western New England. <clears throat> they get a possible internship with Capital Capital Group and Mr. Mike Jones. They get a possible internship with me, either or, and or independent study course credits. And so it's a big, big part potentially of their, of their economics degree uh, to be part of this project. And what, I, what I'm going to do uh, later today is I'm going to send a series of slides uh, to Pat. You can put them up by a spot on the, on the website, uh, hopefully, to, so you can take a look. You'll see some of the uh, samples of the one-page reports that we that we have, uh, and some, some more general information about the, not just the project, but also the, the trade data itself. And there's also, a, I put the data up on a website this year that I had to create due to a mistake at the university. So, Forgive me for, for spelling this out. My name's a little bit tricky if you can't see my name tag. Um, CarlPetrickEconomics.com. It's all one word, all lowercase, K-A-R-L-P-E-T-R-I-C-K. If you can't spell economics, like my mother can't. E-C-O-N-O-M-I-C-S.com. It's not on the business cards, because the business cards predate <laughs> my, my website. Um, all the trade data for this year's door knock is on there. Uh, if you go to current projects, uh, all that's the only thing on there right now is all the trade data. And there's just some more stuff for me. It's, it's a work in progress. It'll get prettied up as I move along. And I'm no doubt going to need some of the really smart interns at the National Council uh, to, to help me with that because I understand the data, but websites defeat me. And I'm very happy to be invited here. I should have said at the beginning, I had a wonderful time last year at the National Council. Uh, I met Dr. Anthony and Pat and John Pratt and all the staff. And I never left. I spent the entire day there. Well, everybody else was busy. Uh, and so having a chance to speak here, uh, I'm very appreciative. And also Mike Jones to continue the partnership with the university and also <coughs> for inviting me down here for the last two years to be part of the project, part of the, the doorknob. So just some very quick data uh, regarding the GCC as a group. Uh, as Chris said, GCC as a, as a whole since 2012 is the sixth biggest export market for the United States. So bigger than Germany, just behind the United Kingdom. Uh, since, since 2010, when I started, you know, that's where I started my trend line for the data, uh, they were the 10th biggest market, then the ninth biggest, and then they've been pretty steady at number six ever since. Since 2012, between 4.9 and 5.6 billion dollars annually exported from the United States 
to GCC countries. And it's very fast growing. Uh, again, from 2010-2016, so over the length of time, annual growth of U.S. exports to the United to, to GCC countries is growing at 9.2 percent. Total U.S. exports annual growth rate that same time period 3 percent. So it's a fast-growing market. It's a big market in and of itself. And also, because we do the state data, so we can go talk to congressmen and impress them. The GCC, since 2013, that's only because that's as far back as I've, I've looked so far, it's a top five export market every year for at least 13 states. And there are 10 states that are what I call perennials on there, meaning every year over that 2010 to 2016 period, every year GCC has been a top five export destination for them. Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Maryland, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Oklahoma, Washington State, and Wisconsin. So notice it's all red states, blue states, all kinds of differences there. It doesn't matter what party's in charge of that state, GCC matters to them. Uh, Delaware, number one export market, GCC, every year for the last six years. Uh, Maryland, New Hampshire, and Washington State, number two export market. So GCC matters to individual states, not just the general uh, United States as an export uh, market. And we're expecting that to continue. We're expecting to see export numbers start to increase again as the GCC is a slowdown. World markets this year, the slowdown GCC as well in terms of economic growth. We're expecting to see that growth start to increase again. So we're expecting to see the dollar amounts of exports increase as well. And I do a forecast, which you'll see it on the, on the slides that I'll, that I'll put up on the National Council uh, website. Um, and any, any questions, my, my contact details are there. I'll talk to as many of you as I can. Certainly, we have a question and answer period as well. And uh, otherwise, you've got my email now. Uh, if you get a business card. And um, also, my contact details will be up on the website. It'll be a bigger piece that I've been promising for over a year to the National Council. And I'll update the current data um, on, to put on their website, which will give a lot more breakdown of that information. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Carl, for those economic trends. I'm not very trending myself. I've never heard of wear those skinny jeans before. <laughs> um, I uh, would like to turn it over to Mr. Robert Hager. Good morning. Uh, I want to thank uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony. I've known Dr. Anthony for a while now. And the, uh, since 2010, I'm Rob, Rob Hager. I'm the chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce uh, in Qatar. We uh, represent over oh, about 100 uh, member companies, uh, primarily American, uh, in various sectors, um, infrastructure, oil and gas, defense, uh, and also very important to us, education. Um, we have six U.S. Uh, campuses in Qatar. And we're very proud of that. They're also members of our chamber. And I'm here today on this uh, this week uh, on this visit with our team, which I'd like to introduce. Um, Teresa, could you please stand up? Here's our executive director, Teresa Dunn. 
And Teresa, this is her last door knock. And unfortunately, she's moved back to the U.S. And we're going to miss her dearly, but she was still saying all the organization. Uh, I also have with me Rayhan Khan. Rayhan, who's on his first, first door knock with me. He just stepped out. Rayhan's from CH2M Hill, uh, and, uh, which is one of the companies that's helping deliver the World Cup in 2022, which I hope to talk, talk to you briefly about. And then to my left is Jake Turk, a long-term member with Legal Trading. Uh, he's been in Doha over 30 years. You probably know exactly who this is. But, um, but anyway, uh, but we're very happy to be here. Um, and um, maybe perhaps I'd like to touch on, um, uh, Chris had, a, I think, a wonderful presentation on, on uh, the American perspective, uh, American business perspective uh, regarding Saudi. And I thought maybe we could turn to Qatar. And um, perhaps, um, and very, very happy to take any questions uh, afterwards, but sort of get a perspective of what's going on now and how that's, um, what's the impact of US, US business, if I might. Um, right now, as we chatted the other day, there was a, there was a wonderful, uh, um, uh, some seminar here with the uh, former energy minister, uh, Alatia, and we talked about the, um, uh, fall uh, in the energy market, and um, and indeed, uh, Qatar is not immune to that. Um, Qatar is blessed with uh, these uh, third largest uh, natural um, gas reserves in the world. Uh, it's blessed with a small population. Um, the population right now is 2.5, 2.6 million people. But of those 2.6 million, only perhaps under 300,000 are Qatar. So small population, a uh, great deal of uh, potential wealth. Uh, but as, as economics with anybody, things rise and things fall. And the last two years have been, um, we've seen some very strict budgets being implemented. Uh, and that's had an impact. Uh, it's had an impact on local business. But we've seen now an impact on U.S. business. And what's happening? Well, first of all, Qatar, like Saudi Arabia, has its 2030 vision. And its vision is a vision away from petrochemicals uh, to diversification, to Qatarization. And uh, you know, steps like this, uh, they take time, and they're not without any fallout. Um, and we've seen things recently as the consolidation of petroleum um, for years has been one of the largest employers in the country. And we've seen job cuts in cutter petroleum. We've seen um, mergers of gas and cutter gas to state and favorite joint venture entities. Uh, that's putting a stress um, in, the, in the environment. And What's that? What's happening as well? Uh, we see cuts at uh, even the prestigious Cutter Foundation, uh, who are laying on the heat. Now, the good news for the American institutions is most of these institutions have uh, renegotiated the contracts and funding is in place, and that's good for the United States. These are six American educational institutions uh, at Georgetown University, Northwestern, Carnegie Mellon. Cornell Weill, Texas a and Virginia Commonwealth. Uh, and it, uh, we think it's one of this, 
uh, a splendid display of the soft power that um, you hear less and less of these days, but which is very important. Um, these are full U.S. curriculum, and one of the, the great uh, things about these institutions, if you've ever been there, is uh, the student body. Um, these institutions are um, almost, um, each of them, a uh, majority of women as students, um, and that's <coughs> amazing. Uh, Texas A&M, for example, engineering school, if you go to an engineering school in the United States, how many women do you think will be in that engineering department? Um, the percentages are very Australia, 
even more important in our perspective is Qatar is a very small country and it depends on the um, uh, expertise of this expat community. And if you look at who is being, um, who are the particular individuals within these government organizations that are making decisions or advising decisions on Qatar, they're often expats and they advise other steering committees, other boards of governors. We find that more and more embedded in these organizations are not U.S. passport holders, and they're passport holders of France, Canada, thank you, uh, Australia. I think the list goes on, and that is impact, uh, impacting U.S. business and the selection of U.S. companies. How does how does it impact? Very simply, um, tenders are done based on standards. Um, if you're being advised by uh, UK or uh, European or German, they're going to be emphasizing uh, <coughs> German standards. And so that's, again, happening. So that's sort of, that's one of the reasons we're here on the deck. We're very uh, encouraged by the new administration's, um, at least the uh, willingness now to take off tax reform. But we don't want to forget that there is the corporate tax reform, but there's also we feel, the individual tax reform that go with that and it help us be more competitive. So we're meeting on the hill to discuss that um, and uh, and to have a balanced shift. I mean, and the irony of ironies, I suppose, is that here we are in Qatar under a tremendous um, U.S. security umbrella. The largest air force bases in the region, quite active. 10,000 U.S. Uh, servicemen and women, great people, and but there is an offset. There is more U.S. service people and less U.S. business people, and we need to we need to balance that. Um, and so that's one thing that, uh, that I'd like to share with you today. Now, the good news about Delphi, and maybe they didn't think about this when they were bidding because the um, yeah, energy environment is different. But I think they're um, winning the World Cup is really allowing them, I think, to um, to go through this with, with this transition period in the energy market. To go through this, though, with a purpose. Um, they have, uh, though there's, there's several projects that stop, those projects related to the delivery of the World Cup continue, and they are immense. We have a rail system, uh, $30x billion, uh, and that is, that is well on, on its way uh, on schedule, as best as I can tell. Um, you also have uh, the completion of the uh, Ahmed International Airport, um, uh, and there's a potential expansion of that airport. We have focus on Doha as a destination, uh, because the 2022 is not supposed to be a single event. It's supposed to be multiple events uh, leading up to 2022 and then beyond to make Qatar a destination, make it a tourist destination, a destination for sports. Uh, so those infrastructure projects continue. And then very importantly, uh, 2022 has um, been uh, a, a means to help um, reform uh, much needed reform in the labor philosophers. The first beginnings of that have changed system, uh, which just were implemented, um, and you know, about a month ago we were 
uh, we hosted at the AmSham, which I thought was quite quite great, great uh, town hall, where we had the Ministry of Labor uh, and three officials from the Ministry of Labor. We had the American business community there, others in the community, and they were there for over two hours asking <coughs> questions, uh, which again, this is, this is um, we think, a, a breakthrough um, in, in, in the country and, and something I think they'll also to record to. So there, there's where we, we uh, or I see Doha now, um, uh, would be, I'd be happy we're here uh, the rest of this week. Um, I'm going to be remain, remain here next week as well. We're happy to ask, uh, answer any questions and uh, we look forward again to our meetings, uh, meetings on the bill. And, and again, uh, thank you, uh, everybody here on this panel, uh, Del, Chris, Mike, uh, and Nala, and uh, Dr. John Duke, again, thank you for your, uh, your support over the years. Appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. Uh, just a housekeeping note for our folks that are heading up to this Senate side of the hill. Apparently, there's been some sort of a security incident with the vehicle and the police, but it's under control. You might want to give yourself a little extra time uh, to get to the Senate side if they haven't cleaned it up yet. Um, with that, um, I'd like to introduce our final person, uh, Mr. H. Delano Roosevelt. He's uh, the former chairman of our organization and the board member of the National Council. And I have had the pleasure of working with him when he was chairman. I got to know him really well. He's an interesting, dynamic, great guy and a good friend. So, yeah. Thanks, Mike. Uh, that, I, I've never been accused of being not being heard, but I'm going to try and use this so that folks can, can you hear okay back there. Uh, can I speak like this, or do you need the mic? Yeah, I need the mic. Need the mic. Okay. Here's the mic. Yeah. <coughs> okay. Um, my name is Delano Roosevelt. My friends call me Del. I've been living and working in Saudi Arabia for the last 13 years. My home is in Southern California in Long Beach. And uh, uh, over in Saudi, I work for the Ali Reza family in Jeddah. I'm director of new business development. And I'm going to speak a little bit to that and share some things with you today with respect to business opportunities and business development. You heard, um, uh, well, just to finish the thought, the, in, in my group, the Ali Reza family is one of about 50 plus uh, very large merchant trading families where they started off 200 years ago as trading families and now they're these multi billion dollar conglomerates. And um, we, in, in our company, we range from IT, consulting, energy, environmental health and hygiene, chemical trading, logistics, advertising, food services, food production, agriculture, retail and fitness, water treatment, and so on. You've heard a lot today about a lot of the, the big picture. And I'm going to try and get it down to the smaller picture for those folks in the room who are wondering, uh, well, you know what, I've heard about... I've heard from some extremely brilliant folks here on, on the high-level stuff. I've heard from attorneys who certainly know Chris, Richard, uh, Bob, and Matthew's in the back. Matthew's kind of our, he's not a rookie in what he does for a living. He works for Denton's uh, law firm, but he's a rookie in the sense of being living in Saudi Arabia. And all of these folks know very, very well how to help you get established 
in the kingdom legally and set up your operation. But you might be wondering, what are the opportunities? Uh, where are the real hot spots and the, the growth areas of which uh, that might be pertaining to what I do for a living? And what's the roadmap in? Because it can be very daunting for American companies to try and figure out how do I actually do business in Saudi Arabia? So I'm going to be giving you a little bit of a smaller picture version and, and focusing on that. Um, one of my dearest, oldest and dearest friends, Dave Cantrell, sitting over here, is, does what I do uh, for the al Ghassabi family in Saudi Arabia. I've only been there 13 years. Dave has been there. I really want to say longer than I've been alive, <laughs> but, but I won't. 39. Quite some time, yeah. And, and he does the same thing as I do, where he gets a directive from, from the head of his family, as I do, from my boss, Sheikh Fahad Ali Reza, saying, for instance, Dell, we want to create an oil and gas division, but not like any other oil and gas division. We don't want to sell parts that where that everyone else sells. Go find some, some, some projects that are niche, that have a great need, that have tremendous offtake possibility, and that's what we want to do. And that is our jobs. So uh, we effectively go out and find these opportunities, whether they be service-related, product-related, uh, they can be involved light manufacturing, they can involve assembly, and we go uh, to the United States, first choice, because we are, in fact, Americans doing business in Saudi Arabia. Over the past years, as you can imagine, the companies that, that we work for are big. So we have we have the steel fabrication plants. We have the the steel the um, cable manufacturing operations. We have petrochemical refining operations. This is all the big stuff that I term big stuff. And all of the big guys, what we've determined, uh, we all know each other. The, the David Cantrells of the world and the Del Roosevelts of the world. We all have a pretty close circle in Saudi Arabia of our business development um, associates over there. We hang out and we, we like each other, we try to take business away from each other, but at the end of the day we all we all are very great friends. And over the last year and a half we've been doing some serious introspective analysis of what would be our business strategy moving forward. You have a couple of factors as you've heard today. You had a downturn in the economy which is mainly due to the price of oil. And I kind of hate to use a downturn in the economy because it is going down, but it means that they're not they're not achieving the, the profits that they hope to achieve. So no one's really going out of business, but they're not doing as well as they would like to do. That's understandable. <coughs> the, the simple fact is, is that if you were to look at what's going on business-wise within the region, is that all the big guys are there the Alcoas, the Dows, the GEs, and they're all, as you've heard today, there are some phenomenal projects, the, the rail system in Qatar, everyone's doing new airports. In Saudi, there's 26 airports, and they're either building new ones or they're refurbishing the old ones. Bahrain, where I live, is my home for the, since 2011. I moved to Bahrain uh, when my wife joined me uh, uh, from the States after she retired. It was about... <laughs> The decision was a compound in Al-Khobar in Saudi Arabia, or a California girl who's never lived outside of Long Beach in her life, or Bahrain. So I like being married to her, and I wanted to stay married to her, so 
not bringing this where we live. Um, but you've heard about these mega projects that are going on. So it, it, as quick as we are, it didn't really take much for us to figure out that these projects, like the Dow, for instance, the Dow Aramco project called Sonar, is going to be one of the largest petrochemical processing facilities on the planet. It's massive. They have over 30,000 workers there working two shifts to get it, get it off the ground. And in fact, it's actually 16 plants in one footprint. You have the Ma'adan uh, Alcoa aluminum project. Ma'adan, for those of you who don't know, <clears throat> you are familiar with Aramco. Aramco is the oil and energy side of uh, arm of the government, of the royal family, as Ma'adan is the mining. So they have a massive operation in 20 to 25,000 people working to get that plant up and running. So as quick as we are, we came to the conclusion that, my gosh, these operations are on a daily basis are going to be consuming products and goods that, to, the, to the levels that will just be off the charts. So you take that concept of stock, you know, we don't need to do the biggest, we don't need to be doing the billion dollar revenue, but, you know, looking at these opportunities that can fulfill a daily, you know, consumption requirement of these mega projects and being in the 50 to 100 million revenue all day long, that's pretty good business. And not only is it a good business for us, but it allows us to help fulfill the, what seems to be the trend throughout the GCC of wanting to uh, create opportunities for local Saudis, local Bahrainis, local Qataris, and so on, Kuwaitis, by helping them establish SNEs, small to medium enterprises. And how can you do that effectively and create jobs is by finding people in the region that we're first determining the need, whatever it might be. So we need plastic cups. Well, my gosh, we certainly have the raw material for plastic cups. Um, I wonder if there's somebody here that would be interested in starting a company to create plastic cups, uh, and then we could find a company in the United States, a small to medium enterprises, who already does this. And this company in the United States makes great plastic cups. So we go and we find out that, that company, and we say, listen, there's an opportunity for you to expand your U.S. business, which is going to be very difficult to do, frankly, in this country, because you have, and this is still one of the last few registered Democrats on the planet speaking, but it's going to be difficult for you to expand your company here in the United States because of taxes, because of unions, and so on and so forth. And we have an opportunity for you to do this to expand internationally and possibly set up with a partner over in the region Train local folks, get incentivized because you're training local Saudis, local Bahrainis to become proficient in, in a trade and you're providing a huge service. And because you're manufacturing it over there, you are severely undercutting the market over there and you're coming in at a much better price. That is our challenge. And there are, in fact, <clears throat> all sorts of programs to incentivize uh, SMEs to be created and to come over to the United States, from the United States, uh, actually, from anywhere. I prefer the United States. Having said that, uh, we have pretty much come to the conclusion that, at least for the, for the Reza group, the Ali Reza family, is that our focus is going to be on how do we promote and utilize these incentives that exist throughout the GCC to attract more 
uh, American companies for their goods and their services and their products to come over to the region and help them find the best fit for them to to expand their, their business here at home. And I know that we do hear quite a bit from Capitol Hill. They get real nervous up there about talk like this because, well, you're moving jobs out of the United States. We're not moving jobs out of the United States. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, when we go to Anthony Manufacturing, and we say, Anthony Manufacturing, we need you to come over here and make and, and start making these plastic cups and utilizing your feedstock over the fence here in the eastern province. This is going to make tremendous opportunity for you to to uh, uh, to expand your business. But the thing is, at the end of the day, at least for the Alireses, I'm sure for the Alamosades as well and the others, we don't want to know, we don't know how you do this, and we don't care how to do this. We want you to do this because you have the expertise, you have the quality control, you have the capabilities to make the, the quality of plastic cups that we want. So you need to bring your folks here, Mr. Anthony, and, and then train Saudis to help work on, on those projects, or train Bahrainis or whatever. So when that happens, Anthony Manufacturing sends four or five guys over, and they're now working, well, he's got to replace these people back home. So he's creating jobs here in the state, in, in Washington, D.C., or wherever Anthony Manufacturing is based. So you're creating jobs here, allowing them to expand their business and 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 attack a global market, which is always a, which is a good thing for any business. So I guess the message to you is is uh, I've spent the last 13 years doing this. Uh, there are a number of other AmCham uh, board members uh, that that know how to do this from beginning, from literally soup to nuts of how to create these opportunities, how to help with the roadmap in, answer questions, is, is there already 50 people over there doing this? Should I even waste my time? We can provide that that help and that insight, which you're not going to get anywhere else. The, the, the chamber doesn't know how, how to do this because they're simply, as wonderful resource as they are, they're just not living there, boots on the ground, daily as we do. And and we know how to, to be helpful and to in creating opportunities for your businesses, and we also know how to guide you away from from negative experiences as well. So uh, with that, I'll put it back. I'm sure there's a lot of folks that have questions, and I want to thank my all my friends up here and everyone who's come today, and my mentor and friend. Thank you very much. Again, I'd like to remind you that your questions um, should be at note cards. So, if you have any questions, we have our staff mentors. Just as a as a moment of reflection here, I just wanted to um, acknowledge um, some of the National Council's board, the International Advisory Committee folks that are here, um, and the staff and the wonderful interns that we have. Um, would you just stand and just be recognized? Because without you all, none of this would be possible. And of course, Dr. Henry. Um, but I just wanted to shout out to them. Thank you very much for, for all that you do. And we've had a busy week. And we have a busy weekend ahead because we have our National Model Arab League uh, Student Leadership uh, Development Program, Student Leadership Program at uh, Georgetown University starting on Friday. Uh, we have 20, uh, 24 universities from across the United States coming through to Washington, over 400 American university students. Uh, will participate along with the academic faculty advisors from across the U.S. Uh, and it's a very intense uh, 
uh, debate, discussion, uh, simulation of, uh, of leadership development, and they learned some great skills in, in speaking and parliamentary procedure. And as Dr. Anthony always says, out of town, grown up, out of town language that we never we never hear of, and they learned how to write under atricious deadlines, and, and they learned just great leadership skills. So uh, a shout out to, to everyone, and some of our staff is actually back in the office working because they had their embassy visits tomorrow where the delegations from these universities will actually come and meet with ambassadors from these different countries to, to learn, you know, what's going on between you and this, what's on this issue with us. Anyways, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Anthony. Sorry to more than I should. Yeah, and I'll turn it to um, Mike, how do you uh, wish to proceed? Uh, we have cards uh, that have been provided to individuals, and I uh, hope that you will put your uh, remarks in the form of a question, and the best ones are uh, those that uh, start with how. You cannot answer a how question, yes or no. Uh, so it tends to draw the um, responses out a little bit <clears throat> more richly in the substantive area. Uh, so, Mike, uh, even if you don't have uh, an, an abundance of course, I have one. Here that was mistakenly given to me. Here comes another one. Um, you know what the issues are uh, better than I do, and so do your colleagues. So you can uh, put leading questions to any of uh, your colleagues here, or all of them, and uh, see what their response may be. Um, and I'm sure there are many questions germinating in minds. It's usually the, the first one that's a little bit more difficult to be forthcoming than all the others, and you have to tell everybody to shut up. Um, so, uh, please write your questions. And as a segue, uh, uh, Mike, I'm going to ask if you begin uh, to formulate those questions. Uh, but here are three. How, what is the Trump administration thinking on issues of uh, need to you, concern to you, interest to you, and uh, linked to your personal or corporate or both uh, objectives uh, to do business in this particular region and um, not fall afoul of uh, new and strange regulations uh, that hit you as a fatal complete. So uh, that's one question. Uh, another one is uh, for Nafael Jaber in particular, it's <coughs> a visa question for interns as the Saudi Arabian uh, Cultural Mission made arrangements for students to do their internship on their student visas. Um, and how can the MTAMs, uh, if at all, assist in this uh, regard? Uh, related to that is um, for those in the aerospace and defense industries, uh, the response used to be that, well, no, uh, Great idea, but we could not operationalize it because a fair amount of our work is confidential, classified, 
super security related and uh, foreign nationals just cannot be involved in that. Um, we have found that a number of these companies have gotten around that uh, because not all of their work is uh, security or classified. Indeed, a great deal of it, logistics, operations, management, administration, science, technology, etc., etc., uh, does not require uh, clearance. So uh, those are fantastic opportunities uh, for internships uh, as well. Um, so there's that for you, uh, Miss uh, Algevera. And could you provide additional details of the exact services uh, for U.S. businesses or nonprofits? <clears throat> Maybe give an example or two of what uh, originally was a daunting challenge for you or the company or the interns, all three, uh, but you surmounted it. How? And uh, what's the um, result been to date? Uh, lastly, uh, Senator Walker introduced a bill last year that would grant diplomatic privileges to the Gulf Cooperation Council. Uh, but it died in conference. Uh, what are the chances of it being revived and passed? And related to that, the National Council has been working with the Office of the Secretary General of the six GCC countries, Bahrain, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, and Oman, uh, to open a Washington office uh, there is a lot of opposition to America becoming any closer to important Arab countries than it already is. <clears throat> this is known and predictable, uh, but there's a need here. Uh, the GCC has, for more than 10 years, had one in Brussels uh, because of the importance of the European Union collectively and its member states, uh, but you can make the case that the more important vital strategic partner is the United States. Um, who would like to take a crack at any of these after Ms. Altebert has the first crack at those directed to her? Thank you. With regard to the process, um, the U.S. government has a nice program. Um, that allows students on an F1 visa to work in the United States, to train the United States, um, either under a CPT, which basically means practical training, which allows them, while they're studying, to do internships uh, or co-ops, uh, but the requirement is that it must be part of their um, degree to graduate, and they can go up to 12 months. Um, and then they have the OBT, which is the optional practical training, which allows students um, either during their studies or after they graduate to work or train in the United States for 12 months. If they're STEM students, that can be extended for another two years. So basically, STEM students who meet all the requirements can train in the United States for a total of three years. Um, and it's all under the F-1 visa, so um, the, the employees do not have to process any paperwork. It's done through the universities for the STEM extension, the three-year extension, um, there are some paperwork for the, the companies to fill just to make sure that the student is uh, fulfilling the requirements of the OBT, but 
um, the companies do not have to file for special permits. That's part of the deal. Um, with regard to um, the aerospace and defense industries, um, as Dr. Anthony has mentioned, there are ways around it. There are non-sensitive areas. We are this summer. We are we have um, uh, five, hopefully six students who are going to be um, doing an internship with a major defense contractor, and uh, they're going to train them in the field of space. So they're going to gain experience and that knowledge. They're going to learn others' tools. Um, they they're going to teach them various things that will help them in their careers. Um, we had a graduate last year that went back to home. Uh, home. Um, I believe he uh, uh, went to Kaus, and now he came back to do a two-year training program at the same company. So there are ways, and we're all now pushing also for the defense contractors to provide services that are not um, um, sensitive, such as in the uh, uh, business field, in the marketing, and so on. So there are ways around it. Um, how can companies help us uh, in this area is maybe put pressure on your organizations to take our students here to train them, which would benefit them too. Um, and then, um, ideally, uh, we continue that relationship back home, um, where so the student already is familiar with the company's uh, uh, culture, knows how, to, how things are done, so when he or she goes back home, um, they can continue, they don't have to be retrained. Um, and the nice thing of tr uh, about training students fresh out of college is you can mold them the way you want them to be molded without preconceived ideas of how to do things so they really can absorb the culture of the company. Um, and then the other question was um, some of the services that we provide. Um, if a company is seeking to either take on interns here or wants to employ students inside Arabia, uh, or graduates, just let us know. Give us um, uh, a description of the ad, or preferably an ad. We will post it on our social media, on our websites. If it's very targeted, for example, if it's for specific uh, uh, students, specific majors, or at specific universities, we can target them by email, telling them that company X is, seek, is, is looking to take on interns or uh, looking to hire students. Um, or the recent graduates, and we will bring that to them directly. Um, we have also another thing that uh, we call the webinar series, is where companies can uh, will conduct a um, webinar, uh, and then the um, where it would introduce itself to our student population. Um, not so much about what they do because that's on the internet, but our focus would be preferably on we'd like it to be on what it's like to work for the company. Does the company promote? Um, uh, uh, continuous tr uh, growth, training, development, uh, is there a possibility for upward mobility? And then open the floor for Q&A. The companies that have done it, we've got very positive feedback uh, because it, it introduced the company to students who might not have thought about the company, applying to the company, and it also um, gave a students an opportunity to talk to the uh, representatives and to uh, sometimes apply right there for positions. Um, and then we also have a job board. We are in the process of updating it. Um, it's, it's functional currently. Um, and also um, a SACM job board, which is only um, uh, only SACM students and recent graduates have access to it. So it's very, uh, the, the um, student population is very specific. So you only get SACM students. All these services we provide um, practically for free. The only thing that might have a cost involved in it 
is conducting the webinar. Um, our office is not very big, so we don't have the technical know-how to, to, to be the sponsor of the webinar. Like companies who do have the capabilities, it doesn't cost them anything, and those who don't, it costs just come out of those to conduct the webinar. From our side, our job is to make sure that the students are uh, made aware of it. We will blast, we blast them um, uh, mass email to all of our students. We um, put it on the social media. We keep uh, reminding people of the webinar so that um, the webinar is well attended. So these are the services that we provide. I have it summarized here. Um, and also, it's also listed on our, web on our website. Um, if you go to sacum.org, um, click on to um, the Center for Career Development, and then you'll come to our page, and on the left side, it will say employers, and we'll have this information um, I don't nearly have enough gray matter to remember all those questions, but I'll do my best. Um, as far as the Trump administration is concerned, uh, uh, let's some light We're lucky. Uh, we have a, a meeting with OMB Director Mick Mulvaney tomorrow, a private meeting with uh, our leadership and, him and his leadership. So uh, we know there are some issues uh, always of concern to us. Um, for example, we support the reauthorization of Exit Bank. Um, we were a little nervous. And the, the actual question says, how well was the Trump administration thinking? Now, I don't know if anybody can really answer that. Uh, but as far as our issues is concerned, um, we were a little worried about Exxon Bank. However, uh, we understand that Mulvaney's budget kept Exxon Bank, even though Mulvaney himself is a friend of ours uh, when he was in Congress. Opposed exit banks, so we were sort of happy to see that still in there. As far as the tax issue is concerned, Mulvaney uh, authored uh, our bill about territorial taxation, so we were extremely happy with that that bill, and not only for corporations but for individuals. And we think that the Trump administration is supportive of shifting from citizenship-based taxation to territorial-based uh, taxation, both for corporations and individuals. So we're looking forward to that. As far as trade is concerned, um, uh, bilateral agreements are, are one of our major uh, issues. We want to see more agreements in the region. We, we don't really feel that there's much desire in the region for a hand GCC bilateral trade agreement uh, with, the, with the region overall. It's not for lack of desire on the U.S. side, but as, as Delano Roosevelt likes to say, pardon the pun, but perhaps those countries don't play so well in sandbox. Um, we, so we'll be looking, we had, uh, Chris and I had a meeting on the Hill about this in December, and um, as far as trade agreements is concerned, and, and there is a, we got the, the real sense that the, we were urged to uh, let our voices be heard about these trade deals because the Trump administration is open to that. Um, I hope I make everything He did. Uh, our impression from our meetings on Capitol Hill um, and how the uh, Trump administration is perceived. Um, there are many elements that are very positive from our perspective. One is that it's a pro-business uh, uh, approach, that the solution to our low growth um, challenges are in empowering business and in being more judicious in the kinds of regulations to impose. For example, one of our issues that appears in the Republican platform from last August is repeal 
um, of FATCA, the requirement for foreign financial institutions to report Americans and the statistics on that are that it has generated something like $250 million in extra taxes at a cost of $6 billion in compliance costs. So there's a lack of real balance there between uh, the, the cost and the benefit. And I think that was characteristic of uh, earlier uh, years and recent memory, and it will not be characteristic of the Trump administration's policy. So that's very much on the positive side. Uh, obviously, we don't like the rhetoric about um, uh, you know, anti-free uh, trade. We believe in free trade, but we think that that's misleading. That was largely campaign rhetoric, and that the reality that we're going to see with people like Lighthizer nominated to be the U.S. trade representative, uh, it's going to be more balanced, more appreciative of the reality that 95% of potential customers for American products are overseas, and we ignore that at our peril, and that trade follows the flag to the extent that we want to have a strong military and maintain the post-war uh, settlement institutions like the World Trade Organization and NATO and so forth. That needs to be accompanied by a proactive uh, investment in business and trade policy. So we think that that's the way it will sort out. We like the idea of reciprocity that we think is probably a legitimate issue. That they, We've uh, been great for free trade, but uh, all of our trading partners have not been as uh, equal uh, minded in their approach to it. And on the border adjustment tax, for example, in this, that can be viewed, even though it's a tax measure, as a reciprocity measure, too. Because currently, most of our trading partners do have value added tax. And you take the anomaly, for example, of um, a uh, car exported from Michigan, you pay the full 35% corporate tax on your profits for export, then you pay another uh, very substantial excise tax or tariff. In, uh, exporting it to Mexico in a range of 10 or 15%, whereas in the other direction, uh, the car enjoys a tax-free exemption when it's manufactured in Monterey, and it faces a very light 3% import tax in the U.S. There's an imbalance there. And, uh, so um, I remember during the uh, Reagan administration, uh, Carla Hills was in the U.S. Trade Representative Office, uh, USTR, and her policy was that she was going to open foreign markets for American business with a crowbar. And I think that captures the spirit of what we're hearing about the Trump administration's attitude. We think that's good. We think we'll also be well received by our GCC partners who really believe in being uh, members in good standing of the international trade community and have properly confronted and helped and uh, presented in the right way that they'll be willing partners in opening up their markets and in addressing some of those impediments to an entrepreneurial environment that we were talking about earlier. If you look at you know, what is the essence of Vision 2030, you know, well, the essence is that they do want to create an enabling environment for the private sector. It's integral to the whole concept, and I think if their trading partners like the U.S. hold them uh, to it, I think you're going to see see it. Now, uh, we've seen things like uh, proposals to reduce budgets for state while increasing for defense. We don't agree with that. We think that uh, you know a proactive defense posture is good, but it needs to be accompanied by diplomatic initiatives. We need to have um, a strong representation working with our counterparts. And we think that applies to state, it applies to commerce. So I'm sure there are ways to improve the systems there, but um, uh, not at the expense of compromising the um, priority of diplomacy in our range of foreign policy tools. Uh, yeah, with that, uh, perhaps we could, uh, if I'd like to call on Phil House Mooney um, from the uh, UAE, who I think wanted to chime in on this as well. Thank you, Mike. Um, 
So, yeah, just to quickly reintroduce myself, uh, I'm Bilal Zahouni, I'm the, uh, the CEO of the American Chamber of Commerce uh, office in Dubai. And I guess I have a, a bit of a unique perspective. Uh, Dubai is more or less an epicenter for U.S. business, across sector, across industry, uh, for the region. Um, I can tell you that uh, Trump administration present, presents uh, quite a few opportunities and quite a few threats. Uh, particularly being on the ground from a local perspective. Um, the threats being the B word, the new bad letter word, uh, the bad letters, uh, B-A-N. Uh, bans uh, present uh, certainly uh, a lot of threats. Um, businesses cannot forecast them, and they affect uh, operations greatly. It started out with the immigration slash visa ban, which, um, when version one went out, uh, I can tell you my phone's battery ran out much earlier than it usually does. Um, many large corporations were affected. They couldn't send their teams over for, for meetings, uh, uh, trainings, strategic gatherings, uh, employee onboarding, etc. Um, version two came out, and uh, who knows if there's going to be a version three, but that's certainly something that we grapple with um, uh, regularly. Now there's the device ban, which affects many of the regional carriers. Um, Emirates and Qatar and, and the regional carriers present a great opportunity for business in the U.S. Uh, from my perspective, um, I represent them just as I do the big American companies, the big American carriers. Um, so I'm quite conflicted with, with something like that when it comes out. But it certainly has uh, an impact and we certainly don't want to see this uh, turning into a, a, a trade war, an aviation trade war. Certainly there is a, a uh, a threat, and I've, I've had that confirmed by uh, state and various uh, sources that I've been speaking to, but the matter and, and the way that it was introduced uh, certainly didn't uh, come across as being uh, uh, conducive to the, to the relationship. Um, you know, there are opportunities, as was mentioned earlier, tax. Uh, there's a great opportunity for uh, corporate tax to, to move to a territorial system, territorial system, which will be favorable for, for corporations. We see uh, individuals being included in there, which would be great for, for big American companies uh, out there, uh, for them to be able to hire more Americans uh, in leadership positions, rather than uh, hiring um, nationalities which are not American, uh, which in which then we see our, our great American companies losing the American uh, culture within their within their organizations. Um, those were just a, a few, you know, uh, two cents that I thought I'd throw in as well. Thank you. You can just hand the microphone next to Fred. Uh, I know that Kuwait, speaking to the intern question, I'm going to ask Del to address the question about specific challenges for nonprofits and companies in Saudi and the region. Um, but Fred, the Kuwait group, I know, has a pretty impressive internship program, so maybe you could address that a little bit. My name is Fred Chiremi, I'm the external chairman for the American Business Council in Kuwait and a veteran of Gornak for so many years. Uh, uh, Kuwait has established, you know, uh, recently, uh, we are working on uh, the American Business Council. We have interns and sponsoring interns in the U.S. for Kuwaiti students to be invited into their program system and education system. So, to prepare for preparing them for leadership and also participation in the major projects that Kuwait, which is uh, coming up at Kuwaiti DNRs of projects coming up in the oil and gas sectors in the, and the health and the infrastructure. Uh, this student program, you know, we established also a link here in Washington as well to have an also implanted 
like our colleague Mahla said, they also they have an arm uh, programs and uh, particular industry that related to their education and uh, expertise. So this will help us also think of it. We are working on education channel for leadership. We have an exchange program between educational institutions. We have U.S. Uh, interns coming to Kuwait as well as send Kuwaitis to the education system in the U.S., which is the program we are working on now to be implemented in this coming year. These things that will help us also, we find it beneficial that U.S. companies also have a program for to train people and hire Kuwaitis and send them back to the U.S. to train on that particular project where they are hired for. This is a new program that the Kuwaiti government uh, also took our recommendation in oil and gas and power supplies and also in the education system. So this work, and we have you know, several educational institutions in Kuwait, which is, uh, we have the University as well, we have the Kuwait American uh, University, we have uh, also uh, Stanford, and we have another company from Harvard program in Kuwait that uh, initiates such educational programs in the state of Kuwait. So these programs, you know, where we said they will help tremendously and making our business business opportunities so these people understand the U.S. system and rather than to go through a video understanding you know, how to do business in Kuwait. So this will be our spearhead also to help up in, uh, in the particular uh, uh, internship. So this program is one of the making and the cooperation between you know, the American Business Council and the U.S. Embassy support and education and development for that particular thing, and also uh, other projects that are coming up for Kuwait as well. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Um, before I get uh, to the, there's a question about JASTA. Also, um, is it impeding U.S. trade? We'll get to Chris on that one, and then developing on the other one. I just uh, wanted Dave Cantrell there to perhaps. I'll talk about security in the in the region. So to all my all of our Saudi friends and Arab friends today, Samalaika. Uh, happy to have you here. Happy to happy to be hosted by you the National Council again, John Duke. I hadn't seen you since probably ninety three. But you, you hadn't changed a bit, you know. So I, that's what's scary. So while we were sitting here this morning, my wife texted me and said, by the way, there was a shooting on Capitol Hill. And, you know, and they, they, they actually caught the guy. And I'm like, well, that kind of leads me into the issues that are always coming up from us with the questions that I get from meetings that we have, from conferences that we hold, from trade promotion events that we do. Because the concern of security for expats in Saudi Arabia. Back, you know, I used to tell a story back in the Al-Qaeda days. I said, yeah, it's like a turban terrorist with an AK-47 behind every tree. And they go, that's the bad news, right? And they go, yeah, what's the good news? It's a desert. We don't have any trees. So, you know, I've never felt uh, at danger in Saudi Arabia. I think that the Saudis have done a fantastic job of keeping the, the atmosphere of security uh, you know, and, and doing it in a way that doesn't make all of us feel uncomfortable. 
So if you're concerned about coming to Saudi or any of the GCC states, uh, you're, you're safer there, I can guarantee you, than, down, than on a couple of streets in, here in uh, Washington, D.C. So, mm -hmm. and that, nor has my wife. She will, she will second your comment. Nor, she ever felt unsafe in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, in Doha, and anywhere. We felt Parts of Alabama I worry about. But here, <laughs> <that's all laughs> right. Thanks, everybody. <coughs> the next question we have involves uh, JASTA. Who knows what JASTA is? Anyway, because John is asking. And uh, what it is is um, a um, it's it's a uh, act of Congress that has removed sovereign immunity. Um, for uh, foreign governments, uh, for complicity in uh, the 9-11 incidents in New York. And uh, so the, uh, the idea is that normally a state can uh, enjoy immunity from uh, the jurisdiction of foreign courts, and uh, there are some exceptions to it, and the JASC expands those exceptions in, uh, uh, in requiring the Saudi government to answer to civil litigation claims for complicity in those actions. Now, um, you know, that's not directly a MECAC or an American business issue, but indirectly it is because it goes to the uh, quality of the partnership and it goes to our main issue in Capitol Hill, which is our desire for a strategic partnership between the U.S. and our GCC friends. And uh, the anomaly of JASTA is that it represents characteristic disunity in the political system in Washington. The administration in the last um, uh, regime uh, was uh, opposing JASTA, in fact vetoed it. It was then passed almost unanimously over the veto. Uh, so uh, it represents a schism and sort of a source of uh, partisan acrimony uh, in an election year um, that ends up uh, being very uh, problematic for the Saudi governments, and not because they think they have any exposure, they don't, and all the evidence points that there is no there there in terms of Saudi complicity, and uh, there have been some uh, uh, classified elements of official reports, uh, they don't reveal any Saudi government complicity, and so, you know, it seems, back to that issue of proportionality that we were talking about, the fact that we want to spend $8 billion to solve the $250 million problem, if you want to set a precedent depriving the U.S. possibly if we apply reciprocity to the benefit of sovereign immunity for things that our military may have done in places like Iraq and Afghanistan over a non-issue. Now, why is this problematic for the Saudis if they're right on the merits, as I think they are from everything I've seen? Because they, they're subject to, uh, um, to discovery demands in the course of litigation in the U.S., and their senior officials have to appear for depositions, and if they don't appear, then they're subject to enormous sanctions, as happened back in 2003 when the civil litigation took place. So extremely um, embarrassing personally to many leaders of the country that we want to develop a strategic partnership with. And so, you know, I think our personal opinions are that it's a crazy idea and um, it should be repealed. And I have some uh, hope that the new administration will share its predecessor's viewpoint on that and uh, use some political chips to convince their friends on Capitol Hill that this is a poor um, uh, erosion of a very critical doctrine that benefits us more than anybody else and should be uh, should be revealed. So uh, that's I think that's our viewpoint on it. Even though it's not directly a business issue, why should we gratuitously uh, poke our 
thumb in the eye of people who are uh, our friends on so many fronts over an issue where they appear to be uh, uninvolved and, uh, and really not complicit. Thank you. Uh, before I get uh, to Dell real quick, there was a uh, question from Richard Bencino, um, our host, uh, about Senator Corker's bill last year that was in the Senate which gave diplomatic privileges to the GCC, which died in conference. And the question is, any chance of it being revived and passed? Um, we do have a meeting with Senator Corker. Uh, the answer is I don't know. However, uh, I will definitely get back to you about that, and we will ask the Senator that question for you. That'd be great. Great. Uh, Delano is going to also address the specific challenges in the region uh, to uh, non nonprofits and, uh, and businesses there. Okay. Uh, I'm going to ask for help on this one because I can't speak. Um, completely for when you say in the region, uh, but I can speak to Saudi Arabia and I can also speak I can speak to Saudi Arabia and I can also speak to, to Bahrain. And I'm going to ask my friend David to talk about a little bit about Saudi Arabia and what we experience as we should be an AMCHAM, but we're, net, we're called an American Business Association and there's a reason for that. And, and I'm going to ask David to take that last half. So for a service and nonprofit, uh, for instance, in the, in, in, uh, let me start off by, as a culture, uh, Saudis, Bahrainis, Emiratis, Arabs in general are extremely generous in their giving. It's part of their, it comes from their heart, it comes from their religion, it comes from, it's their natural thing to do is to look out for one another and help those who, need, who are in need of help. However, that said, it's done very privately because it's not done in such a way where, you know, you're going to have the, you know, Roosevelt Hall for Political Studies at Georgetown University because I gave them $5 million to have that done and have my name splashed. It's just not the way it happens over there. But the giving is, is very large and very generous. Because of that, it's, it's, it's brought up challenges for people that want to set up service organizations or nonprofits in the region because there's no real mechanism to allow that to happen. Uh, so let me give you a case in point and then I'm going to uh, throw it to David to talk about how it affects uh, a, a service group like ours, if you will. Um, in Bahrain, there's a friend of my wife's who wanted to set up a women's shelter. And she's an American. She came over. She has a long, successful history in the United States of doing just that. Identified a need, spoke to the right people. But these types of, that we would understand as a 501c operation just doesn't exist over there. So, for instance, in Bahrain, you can have a status as an organization. You don't need to be a nonprofit organization because there's no taxes. So, there's no real reason to set up a nonprofit organization. But the organization is set up. However, there are some interesting hurdles that you have to, to go through every year as you enter your, your fundraising season. You have to register what type of event that you want to have with the ministry 
you have to register the specific companies and individuals that you want to to go and submit your proposals to to raise money and they can to the ministry and they will come back to you and approve that yes all of these companies are, are fine for you to go and, and fundraise from or these individuals or not and um, so there's no real um, you're not quite sure what you're going to get when you open the box, but it's it's it it does happen and they do exist. So, but for instance, the there are other options. Did you accidentally submit? I did. Sorry. And I was hoping you speak up just at this point. It's perfect. So with that, I'm going to hand this off to. <laughs> It's a sign that we should get up. <laughs> so, um, uh, so it, it can happen. Uh, it's 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 just a different a different mechanism that allows you to do it. Uh, but there are, for instance, we because of fundraising in Bahrain, I sit on the board of directors of the American Mission Hospital. It is literally the oldest hospital in the entire region. It's 120 years old. For us to do fundraising, it made more sense that after we consulted our attorney. <laughs> Richard Mancino to set up a 501c here in the United States to allow for growth of the American Mission Hospital in partnership with American health organizations that definitely want to come to the region now because healthcare is a huge uh, growth area to set up a nonprofit here and work work things that way. But with that, uh, more service side, uh, Dave, can you kind of describe to them how it works for us to exist as an American? Business Association, and it will go out as well for Chris and Riyadh and, and from the Jenna folks as well. We don't exist. There you go. <laughs> We're a figment of your imagination. Uh, now, I, I kind of feel like I should be doing karaoke and singing Don Ho or something now, but never mind. Uh, the, the issues that we have uh, after, you know, we, the, the, the American Business Association Eastern Province has been in operation for 41 years. Uh, but we have never had non-government organizational status and because our efforts are to foster the relationships between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and to generate business between the two countries, it's different. We do a lot of, we always come back to lobby Congress. Right? So the, Several of the ambassadors have said, oh, we'll just set up as a Saudi company. I'm like, well, we can't do that because if we set up as a Saudi company, then when we come back to lobby Congress, we have to register as agents of a foreign government. And so we refuse to do that. And the only way that I, that I know of that we, would, that we would be able to operate officially is with a royal decree. But when we've asked the State Department to go and ask for that royal decree, they always go, oh, it's not, it's not important enough for us. Uh, so, in, at the moment, we operate uh, quietly. Uh, we do the best that we can do, uh, but we don't have official status, and so, therefore, we can't step up uh, to do official uh, AmCham liaison with our eastern province, central province, western province uh, counterparts at the, at, the, at the chambers of commerce there or with the, the offices of the governors and the other individuals who in the ministries that need our help. So 
it would be nice if we could get uh, the royal decree, but I'm not, you know, like I said, I've only been there for 39 years. I don't think it'll happen before I die, but never mind. Yeah. Using the Chamber of Commerce in Saudi Arabia, did that help? We looked at we looked at coming in under the chamber. Uh, we, we looked at all different kinds of, of, of ways to do it. Could, could we come in underneath the like the Eastern Province Chamber, for example? All right. And again, we fall afoul of of coming back and being able to. I can't go to I can't go to talk to my congressman then unless I tell him. Oh, I'm officially a, an agent of the Saudi Arabian government, and we can't. You know, that's a that's not what we want to do. Okay. And it's the same way from the other side. I can't come to, to, to you know to any of the royal family or anybody in, in the ministry or Aramco or anybody else and say, hey, I'm an official representative of the U.S. I'm just I'm just a big old boy from Alabama. It doesn't bother me. So, and you know, we talked about the relationship with the families in the Gulf. You know, contributed the land to the first of gave the land to the American Mission Hospital 120 years ago. Same. Yes. I think it will shake after mine, I will say. So, you know, there's, and, and so it's been a long, long history, a long, a long, uh, enjoyable time for me there. And I hope to stay a few more before the, uh, before I can go. So, anybody, anybody else got any suggestions, questions? So, for the react, um, I have nothing to add really to what David said, but to the deeper issue of the status of NGOs in Saudi Arabia. Goal. That's an important issue, and it reflects uh, on, a, uh, on a gap in the regulatory regime that's akin to what we were discussing earlier. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the only country in the world of its size that was never colonized by any European country, and where the Sharia is still the constitution of the land, and so the default uh, system of law is not the civil law, it's not the common law, it's the Sharia law. And the, Civil law has been introduced piecemeal in certain areas, <clears throat> the company's law, the negotiable instruments law, the labor law. So there are recognizable pieces of European style regulation that exist in sort of uh, uneasy uh, parallel with the underlying Sharia. But there are big gaps, and uh, you know, one big gap is that there's no um, concept of an NGO other than those that are formed by royal decree, which is like I have to count on the fingers of one hand. So that's one area where Saudi Arabia and the Gulf are behind the curve, and where I think uh, its trading partners, including the U.S., should be in front of them to uh, expand the scope of permissible activity to embrace the types of things that NGOs do in this environment. I think they'd be open to it, but um, it's not that easy to. Uh, uh, creates precedents that are not Sharia-derived, so it's politically a little sensitive, but I think it's uh, a necessary part of being a big player in good standing in the world training system. And just to, to sum up on this, there, to answer the first question, is there a need for these kinds of organizations? <coughs> Without question, there is a huge need. In Saudi Arabia, 80% population is under 40 years old. So you have this tremendous youth culture. That, so is there a need for midnight basketball leagues? Absolutely. Is there a need for organizations to organize kids to give them things to do after school? And, and you know, Because if not, you can see what's going to happen when you head down that road where you're not providing quality uh, opportunities and, and programs for young people between 3 o'clock in the afternoon and supper time here in the United States, that's where we have fallen down. 
and, and there's an opportunity over there for them to to experience the same cultural issues that we're facing now because there aren't these organizations and, and opportunities for young people. Uh, so is there a need? Yes. How we'll get there, that's going to be a challenge. Thank you, Bill. Um, Dr. Anthony, again, uh, Pat, staff, thank you so much for having us. We really, really appreciate it. We appreciate everything you do for us. And we appreciate the great relationship that we have with you. Thank you again for your kindness and your hospitality. Thank you, Mike. Um, just a, a closing note here uh, that for experienced uh, folks, specialists, there are no experts in this field. Um, we're all in a university from which there's no possible graduation. Uh, only on the best of days with uh, a lot of hard work and luck do we get murky and complete. Um, but this region that has been the focus of people coming at it from a private sector perspective uh, will remain uh, of ongoing, uh, arguably vital strategic importance uh, to the United States as well as to its principal allies and, and strategic working partners for three reasons. And they all begin with the W, and that is uh, who these people are. Uh, where they are and why they are important. Uh, and in terms of uh, who these people are, they have been uh, partners with us uh, for something uh, extraordinary, uh, the implications of which we're still grappling with. Uh, this is the only place on the planet where not once, not twice, but three times, in the last 35 years, America has mobilized and deployed uh, more of its uh, forces and uh, funds uh, than any other place on Earth. Uh, but despite the negativity of uh, the media and congressional and even academic and other um, portrayal of uh, what's happened in uh, those 35 years, Ponder the following, uh, that the Iran-Iraq war, which was one of the longest of the 20th century, some would say it was the longest eight years, um, 1980 to 1988, uh, came to an end, uh, not by accident or coincidence, uh, UN Resolution 598, July 15th, 1987, which Iraq accepted immediately. Iran took 13 months and prolonged the war um, horrendously. Uh, this was a joint effort. Uh, the United States worked on the five uh, permanent members of the UN Security Council. Uh, the GCC Secretary General, Abdullah Bashara, and Saudi Arabia's Foreign Ministry, and also Bahrain's Foreign Ministry, <coughs> and Kuwait's foreign minister, these were the deans of all the world's foreign ministers, worked to bring the other 10 on board. So you had 15 out of 15. That was the first um, unanimous United Nations Security Council resolution to end the war and to uh, promote peace in this region uh, since the Korean War. Uh, secondly, uh, it was a joint cooperative 
friendship between ourselves and all of the GCC countries, plus Pakistan, uh, that helped to wind down the uh, Soviet invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. And in so doing, that drove the last nail in the coffin of the Red Army and the Soviet Union imploded uh, <clears throat> on the heels of that humiliating de defeat for Moscow. Uh, thirdly, throughout this time, uh, we worked together to prevent the Iranian Revolution from being expanded beyond its borders to the western side of the Gulf. Uh, Iran, in its constitutional documents, is constitutionally bound to export its revolution. So the greatest efforts have been to the near abroad Iraq, uh, which has become um, Iran controlled, uh, but the prize of these countries and their they are who they are in another way. In the last year and a half in the presidential election, uh, namely the people on the planet who were more stereotypically, negatively, and misleadingly and unfairly portrayed as those, as them, uh, as other, uh, to be banned. Uh, no terrorist incident has occurred from any of the seven majority Muslim countries uh, that are part of the, the, the ban, uh, however else you want to describe it. And uh, this organization, the National Council, in association with its sister Arab American organizations, is behind trying to do something about this uh, through the establishment of something that has never before existed, namely an Arab Cultural Institute right in the middle of the nation's capital. We'll not focus on uh, the energy issues so much. It won't focus on conflict, won't focus on um, Arab-Israeli issues, etc. Uh, they're addressed elsewhere. But simply on the enormous indebtedness of all of us human beings to the extraordinarily diverse the deep and massive and pervasive range of Arab cultural contributions to world culture, uh, to humanity, uh, to civilizations uh, writ large. It would be a massive undertaking, perhaps on the order of the African American Museum, which was 22 years in the making. Uh, Try to get tickets to it today uh, to, to visit it over the weekend. You'll be lucky if you, you get your tickets for November. Uh, this is uh, how long people have longed and waited for something like this. The, and our cultural institute is no less urgent and necessary uh, to counter the Islamophobia and the Arabophobia to try to make a difference there. In terms of uh, where these countries are, they are situated uh, with eight countries, seven are Arab, one is non-Arab Iran, uh, there. This is the place where we've had these uh, three wars. But in the process, America has killed more people here than any other place on Earth. Wounded, maimed for life, more people here than any 
other place on earth. Uh, spent, some would be judgmental and say wasted more money, indeed to send the trillions, uh, no less than that, than any other place on the world, on earth. And create more refugees, uh, not just those in Iraq, which emptied out a sixth of the country's people, akin to 50 million Americans being made refugees because we were invaded illegally uh, by another power uh, there, but engendered more anti-Americanism and extremism and militancy and acts of political violence than any other place on earth as a result of policies and positions and actions and attitudes. Uh, it is also where at least one-third in these six countries represented here of all of the world's proven, undebatable, unassailable statistics of the proven hydrocarbon fuels are situated. And although oil and gas have largely a negative image in America, even though it is been key to our unrivaled standard of living, uh, amongst the world's 212 countries since uh, World War II. Um, if we step back and try to at least be minimally clinical, detached, and objective, uh, what country does not run on this commodity, finite and depletable as it is, rich and poor, big and small, new and old, and everything in between? And it is this commodity that drives the engine of the world's economy. It is this economy more than that commodity, more than any other that is vital to people's material well-being and to the water and to the nutrients uh, that we uh, consume uh, to live. So these are just additional aspects of that. In terms of why, uh, passing reference to jobs, was made here, uh, passing reference to sovereign wealth funds, the bulk of which uh, in America's economy, not the economy of others, and we are the net beneficiaries of that. There are a minimum of 400,000 GCC university graduates of America's institutions of higher education and lots of Thanksgiving dinners and rubber chicken, but visits to uh, homes from one end of America to the other. And it is this aspect that serves as a glue, as a lubricant, as an adhesive uh, for this interpersonal relationship uh, that survives in spite of the ups and downs on the politics uh, aspects there. And not least, the ongoing support for the dollar as the principal reserve currency and the medium of exchange for international financial transactions. Uh, there's a sort of a media blackout as to uh, people trying to change this with the Shanghai Corporation and other reserve currencies, but these countries have stuck with America on this. 
And so they're important for many reasons, not just energy. Uh, the financial dynamics, the economic dynamics are not to be uh, underplayed. And this is key to the ongoing preeminence of the American financial and banking system worldwide. And then lastly, these six countries could be forgiven and understood as we could be forgiven and understood for why we're involved for the long haul. Uh, in the sense that, in their view, America remains militarily, financially, economically, scientifically, technologically, even educationally, the world's most important country. Uh, so we have a lot going here and it needs to be protected, strengthened, expanded, and defended. And these kinds of uh, sessions at least enhance their information and knowledge and understanding and insight and our capacity for more critical, responsible, and effective reasoning than where we're not to have gathered here. I challenge